and welcome to How to Win Friends and Influenza, a podcast all about life in medicine and things related to a life in medicine. I'm your host, Lily. Now, we're talking about being doctors and practicing medicine, which is strongly based on being able to diagnose your patient, treat them accordingly, and just manage them properly overall. Thankfully, medicine these days, or at least good medicine, is largely based on evidence. So no longer do we have those days of witch trials and uh, just flipping coins or random things like that. So medicine is thankfully a lot more grounded. But how do we know what drugs to use, what investigations are best, and just how to manage our patients? Well, it all comes down to good quality evidence. And the basis of good quality evidence is the humble clinical trial. So that's why medical research is very, very important. So today I have on the show with me, Julia, to talk all about medical research. Welcome. Hi, how are you? Good, thank you. And I see you've finished uh, eating your mint. I have, just about. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that is the beauty of podcast introductions. So, um, Julia, why don't you tell us a little bit about what kind of medical research you do? Okay, so uh, I work at the Woolcock Institute of Medical Research, which is an independent research institute in Sydney. Uh, basically, we, do, we deal with sleep and respiratory research, but... I've primarily focused on sleep research and primarily I've looked at people who have um, sleep apnea, which is a condition where they stop breathing throughout the night and therefore feel quite sleepy during the day. There are a lot of these people who don't tolerate standard treatments well, so the main aim of my research has been looking at other ways we can treat their daytime symptoms because they feel quite sleepy and uh, don't function very well during the day. So my research primarily focuses looking at those people. Yeah, and sleep is so applicable to all of us because all of us sleep and it can really affect someone's quality of life. If you don't get good quality sleep, you can feel tired all day. So this must be very rewarding work. It is, it is. And you definitely see people uh, who come in for a research study and they get treated along the way. We've had people lose a lot of weight, had reduction in their symptoms and, you know, they are very thankful for what you can provide for them. I've got these, a few thank you cards up here for for all the things that um, we've done for people and that's definitely really rewarding. Yeah, that's really awesome. Um, although the listeners can't see this, um, Julia was just um, gesticulating to a couple of really amazing um, thank you cards in her office. Now, how did you fall into medical research? Did you always know that you wanted to do medical research or did you do something crazy like study German before? <laughs> hmm, maybe you already know this because, yes, I, um, I definitely didn't know that I always wanted to do this. So when I left school, my favourite subject was German. I did really well in German. And so I left school pursuing an arts degree, majoring in German. Um, I was able then to go on exchange to Germany as part of that, but I really found that, that I found that interesting and wonderful. But what really interested me was the sort of junior science units that I'd done at university. And so I pursued a, um, a double degree, science and arts, majoring in pharmacology and German. Um, and then after that... I was encouraged to do honours, but I didn't take up that opportunity. Probably should have in hindsight, but anyhow, I then went on and did my master's in health sciences because throughout my pharmacology training, I was exposed to clinical trials kind of methodology and the whole idea of how drugs work really fascinated me. So I, I kind of pursued that and did a master's of health sciences clinical in clinical trials, basically. 
And then after that, I actually got a job as a clinical trial coordinator at the Woolcock Institute. At that time, I wasn't looking for a sleep or a respiratory role. I just got a job as a study coordinator. And then I've really um, been lucky to sort of fall on my feet here and pursue this interest in sleep research. So yeah, it, I don't have a fantastic story of I knew from when I was a child I wanted to be a sleep researcher or anything like that. It's just sort of following paths that open up for you, doors that open up for you along the way, yeah, has gotten me here and I'm very happy here. <laughs> yeah, I actually think that's a really awesome story because your adventure kind of unfolded as you went through it and the truth is a lot of people can say that they're going to be an astronaut as a child but, you know, how many astronauts are there. So in a way, it makes a lot more sense to um, figure out what you want to do as you're doing it. Mm. So I'm happy to say that now you have a very glamorous life. You have your own <laughs> nicely decorated office. You work at the Woolcock, which is a premier, um, you know, sleep and breathing sort of institute related to the University of Sydney. So it all sounds very glamorous. But in truth, um, clinical trials aren't always as glamorous as they're made out to be. You know, we have, we have these perceptions of like, you're going to design this trial and the trial is just instantly done. But in real life, it takes years and years of work. A lot of staff are involved. Um, a lot goes into it. There's a lot of admins. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, well, um, so when I first started at the Woolcock um, as a trial coordinator, my job was entering people's names into a database because they were research volunteers. And I loved my job because I was just so excited to be around these people doing all this exciting work. The work that I was doing could definitely not be described as exciting, but it, it felt good to be a part of something mm. bigger that was exciting. But literally my job for the first few months was coming in, typing, entering information into a database and then... Um, occasionally I would ring people to see if they were interested in research studies. So there's a lot of admin. So what you start basically from the ground up, you need, there's a lot of data entry, there's a lot of um, recruiting of participants, which means sometimes kind of lukewarm calling. I guess it's not cold <laughs> because it's completely not out of the blue. They're volunteers on your database, but you have to still kind yeah. of <laughs> ring them out of the blue and get them to be in your study and and it's definitely not glamorous, but it is rewarding at the end of the day because you might get 10 phone calls where they hang up on you, but there's that one call where someone says, I've been really, oh, I've been thinking about getting back into this um, sleep thing. I've been sleeping terribly. My wife's been complaining, blah, blah, blah. And so if you can help that person, it's really quite rewarding. So yeah, not glamorous, a lot of admin. And a lot of the time, um, it depends where you work in clinical trials. So there's sort of two streams, I guess, in clinical trials. There's um, industry-sponsored and then there's investigator-driven. And so industry-sponsored is where a drug company comes up with an idea and they have a new drug or a new device or whatever and they want to trial it. They go international and you are just basically a pawn in the game and you recruit a few participants following their protocol and everything like that. Now that is um, interesting to be part of a bigger thing but you don't have any scientific input in that. You can't help design the study really. You're just sort of doing a work, doing work as per a contract. Whereas the investigator driven stuff which is a lot of what I've been doing more recently is more exciting Excuse me, because you can um, you do have input in that you 
Um, you can help design the study. You can say, look, we've tried to recruit participants with these characteristics before and it's really hard. So how about we alter that and look at this different subset of patients and, you know, that might be a more interesting research question. And how about we make this our primary outcome of the study because it's more of interest to the patients rather than that, which is no one cares about except sleep physicians, you know, so you can actually have more input into the design of studies. And I think that that investigator-driven stuff is certainly really quite exciting because you're sort of there from the beginning and can see it all the way through. Yeah, and so there are several parts to any sort of medical research. I suppose the first part is the designing, but then there's also the execution and all the stuff that comes after, like data analysis and writing the paper and hopefully, fingers crossed, publication. Yeah. But um, going back to what you just said, um, so some interesting analogies, at least interesting to me, crossed my mind. So one of the big rewarding things about medical research is the end goal. And maybe this is true of any kind of um, job or, or difficult task that sometimes when you're doing it, it might not be the greatest. Um, but at the very end, there's some sort of light at the end of the tunnel. So it's a bit like maybe what a lot of people feel about exercise or going to the gym. Maybe that while you're doing it, you're sweating a lot and you kind of wish you were lying on your couch. But, you know, at the end of the day, the, the goal is kind of what's worth it. And um, you also mentioned starting from the bottom and, um, you know, moving your way up. And I guess maybe that's like working in fast food when people start at McDonald's or, or more accurately, maybe like Domino's. I think the CEO of Domino's started off as a, um, a delivery employee, eventually worked his way up to CEO. So yeah. in a way, um, again, true of anything in medical research, medicine, you have to be prepared to, um, you know, start from the basics, start from the beginning and then when you do well at that and I guess when people recognise you when you contribute to a lot of papers, then you start to move up. Yeah, that's right. So I think um, that that's kind of what happened to me is I, you know, I was so interested in everything and put my heart and soul into everything, even if it was just that data entry into the database. I did my very best data entry. And, you know, so people people can see that and mm. they and they kind of, you know, you put your hand up mm. for extra opportunities and then people identify that and then through that I, I actually was able to pursue my PhD at this same institution because mm. um, I was encouraged to to do that and then because I'd had that clinical trials grounding I could I conducted two clinical trials as part of my PhD so um, that in a way rather than that being a big jump for me that mm. was kind of an easy transition to, yeah. to doing that as part of extra study. Yeah, yeah, and it just shows how important attitude is. So when you have that positive, hardworking attitude that people recognise that and that really goes far. And again, that's good for medical research, but just good for life in general. <laughs> just good for life, I think, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Awesome. And um, now you mentioned doing your PhD. Yes. Um, people who are doctors, not yet in medical research, may be interested in doing PhDs. Can you tell us what that experience was like? Yeah, so um, I, was, I was lucky in some ways because I already knew my supervisors before I started with them and I think that's really important because um, I could talk to them openly, I could basically ring up my supervisors and say look I've stuffed up, can you please help me fix this and I think that's, that sort of relationship is really important. Um, so I had fantastic supervision. Um, I was also supported by a scholarship from the NH and MRC which certainly helped a lot and I know that's not always um, possible for everybody but I think that you know if you are interested in that sort of thing you've got to get in early um, talk to people get to know people um, 
see and and if that you have to be passionate about your mm. about your topic because if you're not passionate about your topic you're going to get very sick of it after three and a half years yeah. or however many years mm. it takes you but yeah I think that I think that a lot of people are frightened by a PhD and I, I don't think that they should be because a lot of the time it's just kind of translating the work that you're already doing into something that's a bit bigger something that's um for you Mm. and so if you're already interested in working in research um, you maybe are already doing a little bit of research work if you can just sort of um, make that a formal arrangement document it come up with a plan of what you're going to write about it it actually might not be as scary as it sounds Mm. so I wouldn't discourage anyone from doing it I think that it's um, certainly rewarding and it definitely opens doors later down the track Um, yeah, for anybody, medical or non-medical. Right, so it sounds like people shouldn't be scared of doing a PhD, but you should just know if a PhD is suited to you. Yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't leap into something without mm. knowing a bit about the topic, a bit about your supervisors, um, and, and what the actual work will entail, you know. So at, for my PhD, working in sleep research, we often had to be here, I often had to be here when the participants woke up in the morning, you know, six o'clock in the morning mm-hmm. or up to when they're going to bed at night. So um, for handover with the, the night technician. So I'd be here till nine o'clock at night sometimes. And so, you know, that worked for me. I didn't have a family or anything at that stage. So I was, it's, everything's all fine. But f- for other people, they have to just think about mm-hmm. what, what are the expectations going to be? What's the workload going to be? Um, and see if it will work for you and your life. Yeah, so I guess there are some lifestyle considerations, but that said, every PhD and every research um, timetable will be a little bit different, so it's sort of your mileage may vary. Of course, definitely, yeah. Okay, and now talking about the tasks that were involved, um, just wanted to make a general comment about research. Um, Although we've been talking about, you know, some tasks not being glamorous, that sort of thing, Mm. um, I I like to think that they're not there, you know, just for the sake of bureaucracy. Mm. I think it's the case that research trials well conducted have to be quite rigorous. You want to make sure your data is safe. That's why we have, um, you know, vaults, like physical vaults where data is kept and then all these measures on the computer and double entry and people checking things. It's not just for the sake of creating work. It's because we want to safeguard these files and make sure this um, is really good quality research. Yeah. Yeah. So um, with your PhD, what do you think were the most challenging tasks? Hmm. Most challenging tasks. Um, do you mean in terms of the, the that sort of thing that you're talking about, the rigour, all of that? Or are you talking more about, for me personally, what I had to learn? Let's say one from each. Okay. Okay. So I think that when it comes to sort of ensuring the the rigor and um that I think the hardest part for me actually which is quite funny because I'm speaking to a soon-to-be medical audience um (laughs) potentially is that you know I had a clinical trials background so I had a good understanding of the rigor and the documentation and all of that that's required as per the good clinical practice guidelines that we all fall under um but I, I was quite reliant upon the physicians and other medical um, specialists working around me to also follow those guidelines. Mm. And so a lot of my time was spent kind of corralling them and saying, no, you have to sign this, you have to date this, you have to document this this way. And so one of the biggest challenges in clinical trials 
and during my PhD for me was actually trying to get Professor such and such mm. to come and sit next to me and document something in the way that it needed to be documented as per good clinical practice. And so that that's a challenge, but I think I'm lucky that I work within a team where while they are they it's an annoyance they understand that mm. it's required and I think that relationship is quite healthy because they know I'm that narky clinical trials <laughs> one who makes them do stuff, but they need me and I need them. So it kind of works out well. So I think that is a big challenge, but if you've got a good healthy relationship, mm-hmm. then yeah. it's okay. Um, but for me personally, the challenge I think would be um, moving from balancing um, in your day very practical tasks like seeing participants and taking their blood pressure and taking their blood and talking to them and then moving to a quite a cognitive task where you have to um, look at the you know the wealth of literature and boil it down and write your literature review and you might have to do all of that in the space of one day and being able to flip your brain from Mm. the very practical I'm writing something in a file to right, let's think about sleep in general and talk about it, you know, that I found that quite challenging. And, you know, I've had to come up with strategies in order to manage that so that maybe I I try and do, try and go away. Maybe from home I can do that sort of thinking, writing sort of work, whereas I come here to the Woolcock to do the practical, physical, you know, seeing participants, you know, that sort of thing. So, um yeah, that, that's probably the biggest challenge, I think, is balancing those two different types of work that you must do. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like multitasking and like flipping your brain to um, focus on different things, but it sounds like co- compartmentalising it, having a separate environment for one thing, separate for another thing worked. Definitely, yeah, definitely helped, I think. And everybody has a different way of doing things, but for me, um, I... I was having trouble doing all of that in the same environment because I'd get stuck. I'd get stuck down in the practical and never mm. do the thinking stuff while at my desk at work at the Woolcock. So I'd, if I went home, I'd, you know, yeah. look at the tree out the window and think about <laughs> sleep and what it means and be able to write about it. So yeah. it sounds a bit corny, but it, it, it actually worked. <laughs> yeah, if it works and it works, yeah. yeah. And some people have other strategies like um, Pomodoro technique and, you know, um, time boxing what they do and things yep. like that so it's just whatever works whatever for different works people. Yeah. yeah yeah now you mentioned um interacting with professor such and such <laughs> and you know and patients and um people like that so in uh, medical research actually you interact with a lot of different roles so off the top of my head i can think of doctors and patients and volunteers um the research assistants um just people who work in the Woolcock. so um have i missed anyone who do you interact with and who do you work with the most yeah. Um, so, yeah, you're right. You you have to be able to communicate with all sorts of people at different levels. And I think it's important to remember who you're speaking to and how you are speaking to them or mm. communicating with them by email or whatever. Um, who I speak to the most is probably colleagues. Um, and that's at different levels. So I have colleagues who are, you know, associate professors who in, in research, who mm. you go to them and ask them a very specific question about study design and that sort of thing. But you have other colleagues who are more research assistant type people who you have to um, talk to, but you also have to listen to mm. because they are the ones on the ground doing the work and you know what it's like to be them. Yeah. And so you want to make sure that their job is as easy and efficient as possible. So 
I think, um, yeah, you do have to speak to a lot of people. And I think it's important to remember within a research team, it's not just the people doing the research, but there's also all sorts of other people. There's the receptionists who mm. greet the participant on their way in. There's the accounts people who pay you and pay everybody. Yeah. There's the facilities manager. You know, there's a whole sort of – there's like the core group and then there's a bigger group of people mm. working together to sort of support that and, and really without all of that networked working together, you, you, you just can't do research. Um, but, yeah, definitely you have to – you have to change, modify your own, how you're speaking to one another, depending on your audience, I guess. Yeah. Now, when I was a lot younger, in my early, early, early days of high school, I played in a basketball team where, look, I like to think we were okay, but um, we had this one really tall uh, player who sometimes, you know, she really saved us. So when the rest of us weren't all that proficient, um, she would really um, help us score some baskets. Um, but I think research is not so much like that. You can't just rely on one single person to do everything. So from what you said, it's definitely very, very team-based. And I know the vibe here at the Woolcock is um, very, very good. So what is really interesting to me is the people who design the experiments are not necessarily those who actually run it. So for example, you might design the experiment, do the data and the paper writing, but um, there will be uh, research assistants, even night staff who monitor the patients as they're sleeping, who will actually execute it. So everyone kind of does a different role and everyone you know, has this complex bio system where they all rely on each other. So that's really cool. It's very yeah. much team based. It is very much team based. Yeah. And it's, you know, very rare that anybody can do a research study by themselves. Very rare. You know, as a non-clinical person, I need clinical people. But the clinical people can't do it themselves either because they might not be able to do all of the um, research design and analysis techniques that I can mm. do nor do they have the time, so they we, we require one another. So I think that that's, remembering that is really important. You can't be a one-man research band. That just, just doesn't work. Mm. <laughs> Unless yeah. you want to do some very dodgy research. Well, yeah, <laughs> potentially, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but um, of course we don't want to do that kind of research. We want to do really good research, and, and good research takes money. So I know one of the big... Um, hurdles of research is funding, applying for grants. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that sort of challenge? Yeah, so there's usually there are usually different layers of funding in research. There's project funding and then there's personnel funding. Um, <clears throat> you need both. You need to have um, the project funded and you need to be able to pay and eat yourself, <laughs> basically pay rent and eat. Yeah. Um, so research funding in Australia is extremely competitive. Uh, the National Health and Medical Research Council d does have um, a robust funding scheme, but it is extremely competitive. So I think that for project grants, it's down to between 10 and 15% success rate, mm. and it is hyper-competitive. So um, you have to basically be the top in your field and have yeah. a team that's really the top of your field in order to get a project funded. The NH and MRC is going through an overhaul um, at the moment and next year the funding um, arrangements will be different, but there's only a, sm yeah. a certain amount of money. So um, it is really competitive. So I think people have to sort of... Um, look further afield and maybe also be flexible because 
if you are kind of wedded to a research idea, um, you might not be able to be eligible for certain types of funding. Um, so an example is um, a, some research funding came up for um, chronic fatigue syndrome and um, or what they call now systemic exertion intolerance disorder, SEID. And while that's not directly sleep-related, one of the primary symptoms of chronic fatigue syndrome is um, non-restorative sleep. So my boss here at the Woolcock, he looked at that and said, look, this is kind of right down our alley. We're interested in non-restorative sleep. We could help these guys with chronic fatigue syndrome. Let's apply for this grant and see if we can kind of do some research looking at why these guys become chronically fatigued is it because of their non-restorative sleep can we figure out something here and so we're doing a research study now we applied for that grant we got the money we're we're kind of working on that now so while it's kind of a bit of a left-hand turn Mm. from the traditional sleep research I'm fascinated by fatigue and daytime sleepiness so it all kind of fits in but if I'd been completely wedded to that sleep apnea Mm kind of that's all I'm interested in then I wouldn't have had that opportunity to sort of look for that stream of funding or look at this um, really quite interesting topic that not many people have the opportunity to look at so I think that yeah funding is extremely competitive but um, there are opportunities out there if you're willing to be a little bit flexible with your research ideas and, and things like that as well. Does that make sense? Yeah, Yeah. it does. It makes a lot of sense. And I think, again, it reflects a really good attitude in medical research and in life, which is just having endless curiosity. And that's kind of what drives people to do this research. Yeah. Um, I remember seeing this picture um, online of sort of a representation of medical research. All the knowledge in the world is a circle. And what you're trying to do is push the boundary of the circle. Although when you zoom in, you know, it's it looks like a big breakthrough when you zoom out. It's like a tiny bump in the circle, but it's yep. still making progress because progress yeah. is made a little bit at a time. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I think while I agree with that little bump in the circle idea, I think that, that that's also a dangerous way of looking at things. And I think that researchers, are, uh, they often work within their silo, as we call it. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's quite a dangerous way of doing things because especially in medical research, um, you can't just look at someone's one component of someone without at the expense of everything else. Mm. You can't just ignore if you're looking at respiratory function. You can't ignore cardiac function. Mm. Like the obviously they're they're extremely closely related. So I think that what we're trying to do in um, a lot of our sleep research is have a kind of multidisciplinary approach where we or interdisciplinary approach where you kind of are working across the silos so we've worked with cardiologists and endocrinologists and um, different types of people to try and answer questions in general trying to avoid that little bump on the circle (laughs) (laughs) because I think that it's so easy to get dragged into a particular direction yeah okay and now, um, going back to what you just said before about talking about the grants and the two different types of funding, so there's project funding and um, personnel funding, which yep. I guess is a good thing because, you know, if you're starving and you're a skeleton, you can't run a study. Yes. But, um, <laughs> is there ever uncertainty with, um, you know, job security or, you know, is everyone sort of waiting with bated breath before the results of the grants come out? Yeah, definitely. There's um, a lot of job insecurity. Uh 
so myself, for example, I, um, I'm currently funded by, a, a, like personally, I'm funded by a grant from the National Health and Medical Research Council's Centre of Research Excellence that is run by sleep researchers mm. called NeuroSleep. Yep. Um, and so I've got that funding guaranteed for this year, but after that, I'm on my own. So I'm in the process now of applying yep. for um, further funding yeah. for next year. Um, but I, I don't know what I'll be doing next year. Um, so, so yeah, there's definitely a lot of insecurity. And I think that that uh, people find that quite challenging. Mm-hmm. And so they do um, try, they do end up often leaving an academic pathway to go and, and find something else. Um in saying that, a lot of the clinicians, a lot of the clinician researchers mm. who I work with seem to have a really good balance because often they have a hospital job with a research yeah. component to that. And so they have a secure job, they have funding, um, but they the, the caveat is that they have limited research time. Yeah, so it's a bit of a trade-off. Um, but they are, that is why they require people like me who are full-time researchers Mm -hmm. to, um, help them get that job done. So I think that, um, yeah, so, and similarly for non, um, clinicians, it's a similar role with, um, the university and academia where you can, you know, get a job as a lecturer slash researcher. And so that's usually a good balance as well. So, there are more permanent options, but often a pure research career, you're going grant to grant, and often the longest grants you get are about four years. Yeah. So four years is still a pretty long time. Four yeah. years is a pretty long time, but it's the they are of a medical school degree. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, it feels long. Um, so yeah, so I guess basically, mm. you know, uh, you can. Um, <clears throat> it's up to the the individual. I guess, yeah. and a lot of people do find it really hard to stay insecure because the four-year grants are, aren't common either. Mm. They're the hyper-competitive ones that I'm applying for at the moment. <laughs> well, yeah. um, just want to make a comment on that. Like you said, the top sort of 10 to 15% of people, um, you know, of, the, of grants still get through. So it's not a question of, oh, there's absolutely no vacancy or anything like that, I guess. In the end, it comes down to the reality of, of what the medical research field is like. And I guess if you love something so much, um, sometimes you have to sort of, you know, deal with the sacrifices that come with it. So, yeah, um, yeah. so I guess that's kind of how medical research is. It's it's a kind of thing where if, if you want to go into this field, you just have to be aware of, um, you know, what the sort of employment um, situation is like. But actually, this idea of job insecurity um, is quite applicable to medicine as well because a lot of people will apply for training programs, go for particular specialties, and they won't really know if they'll get in or not. They might take the basic physician's training exam. Maybe they'll get in, maybe they won't, and they'll have to try it again next year. So do you have any psychological tips or any um, you know mental processes that helped you deal with the uncertainty? Like let's say you've chosen this is the path you want to do and you have to go through with it. Yeah. Um, how did you feel at ease with it? Yeah, so I guess um, it's partially um, a personality thing. You have to have the right attitude to to sort of back yourself that you will be okay. So, Mm. you know, I often think about 
things, and this works for me, maybe not for everybody, I kind of have plan A, B, C, D. Mm-hmm. My plan A is to go pure research career. Yep. My plan B would be to go into academia, university type thing. thing. Plan C, research management, because I've got this experience mm-hmm. and I know that there are sort of jobs out there for that. And plan D is you know going back to the data entry which I'm totally happy to do if a b and c fail you know so I guess um having that flexibility in your planning and knowing that knowing that you'll be okay you know if you kind of if you kind of go for it and miss that's okay but at least no regrets but at least you've gone for it um but yeah so I think having those backups is a good idea um yeah it is, I'm a bit cynical sometimes. I often see that a lot of the successful researchers around often have support at home. They have a husband or a wife who, or a partner or whoever mm. at home who who brings in the bacon and has and pays the mortgage or pays the rent or whatever and lets them have their career as a researcher that's a bit more insecure. I often see that happening. And that's a little bit cynical for me to say that, but um, definitely having security seems to be um something that can Mm. help um yeah but everyone's different and I think um having having backup plans is probably the best way to go okay although you say you're cynical I think I think you're (laughs) rather a positive person so I, I think it's a combination of having this strategy this backup plan like you said um you know being quite confident in your own abilities the fact that you've sort of built a career here you know get along well with people and also being positive I think the most cynical thing you said was bringing home the bacon I don't know if we're allowed to say that now that bacon's carcinogenic <laughs> oh, okay right right <laughs> bringing bring home the kale or something bringing home the kale yeah, yeah okay fair enough <laughs> all right so so we've talked about funding that's one of the big um difficulties in medical research just a reality of limited resources the other difficulty is publication so that's mm-hmm. what people go for again there's uncertainty there so can you tell us about the publication process the process like practicalities of it yeah, yeah. just give us an overview okay so basically you've done let's say you've done your research study yep. you've done your analysis you've come up with some findings and you're really excited about them you've written a paper now it's time to submit it somewhere so what you have to do is you have to find the most relevant journal. Um, usually you're looking for one with a high impact factor that um, will have a readership because you want people to know about this really exciting research that mm. you've done. So you look for a, a journal that's um, reputable. You go to their website, you find the instructions for authors, you follow all of them and that might be you know, shortening the word count to under 3,000 words and making sure that you've only got two figures and two tables or whatever the guidelines say. And then you have to submit it online as per their instructions and then you wait. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the variable part. <laughs> and that's the variable part. So sometimes they get back to you really quickly with a very quick no. And that's actually not too bad mm. because what that means is you can go back, you can go to the next yeah. journal that's of interest in your field and then start the process again. Um, sometimes they come back, um, after a little while with a, mm, maybe. Mm. And so that's where they have suggestions for you that it's been through a peer review process, usually by two, maybe three reviewers. They check it. They say, we don't mind it, but this could be better. That could be better. Fix this. If you send it back, we'll think about it again. And so they send it back. You send, you fix all the things as best you can. You send it back. 
at that point they can say again yes or no. Um, but often from the time that you complete your research to the time that it, you actually get the yes, it can be months, it can be a year um, or more depending on um, how quickly the reviewers get back with their comments, how quickly you get back to them with your comments. Um, and so you have to be prepared for that. So I'm, I'm going through that with a few papers at the moment, um, which is fine. It's all part of it. But rejection becomes part of your day job. You have to be able to yeah. accept that rejection on a fairly regular basis. And it's not personal. <laughs> and it doesn't mean that not everybody not – everybody you know, someone will love your research mm. just like you do, but you just have to find the right fit. Yeah. And so um, I think that these days they're with some open access journals like PLOS One, um, they're usually generally more open to research as long as it's being conducted in a rigorous manner. They will publish more often um, research that's that's been done well, mm. um, irrespective of the results, because there's this kind of positive um study bias where if you have if you answer a question Mm. with a yes you know they're more likely to publish you than if you say with a no now technically no one says that that's not a rule that's written down it's just not it's not a thing yeah but it just is a it just happens you know if you have if you've answered a question positively people will be more interested in your research and you tend to get published um, in a higher impact journal and that sort of thing. <clears throat> but I think it's really important to publish the negative results as well because it all helps. We've answered a question, just not with the correct answer. <laughs> so, so yeah, I think um, it, it's, it's a challenge. And if you are thinking of um, participating in research or helping out in a research study, just be aware of that, you know. If you, mm-hmm. if you say, yes, I'll... I'll um, I'd love to work with you on this research study. Be aware that from the date of submission yeah. to the date of publication could be 12 months. So, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and so you're juggling a couple of things at the same time, a lot of multitasking. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. So I've, you know, I've got my little list here. I've got, you know, one paper, two papers that are being reviewed at the moment. I'm submitting one today, hopefully submitting another before the end of the week. I'm writing... Um, another three or four so there's I've got Mm. them sort of like along a pipeline you know there's a they're all at different stages but yeah yeah and um for the listeners we're just looking at Julia's um, beautiful beautiful whiteboard with um perfectly color coordinated pink and purple writing so obviously you stay very organized you've got a couple of projects going on so it's really interesting that you know people do want to aim for those top journals like Nature, Lancet, New England Journal of Medicine, Sleep, BMJ but now there are these open access journals that are coming um not all of them are reputable but but you know um some of them are okay yeah. Now, some of the time spans from, you know, submission to uh, publication can be long, but what about from the beginning of the research to the very end? That can take years, can't it? Yeah, it can. Um, particularly, it, uh, yeah, particularly if you are doing something like a clinical trial, often you have to do a small pilot project um, first with basically no money and you need to have results so that you can then apply for funding for a larger study. 
So that pilot project might take a year or 18 months to kind of mm. conduct and finish. Then you apply for funding. The funding might take, you know, we apply for funding in March and we only find out in October for the funding to start the next year. So you have to kind of really be mm. future-proofing, like forward planning. Um, so that's before you even get the money to start the project. Then you start the project if you're looking at doing a clinical trial, so for my PhD, we did a clinical trial. We were looking for 130 participants. We started recruiting them in 2012, um, but we we weren't able to complete um, recruitment until the end of um, 2014. So that was like a you know, 2012, 2013, 2014, three years of recruitment. Then they were all followed up for a year, so we didn't finish until 2015, and then we were still writing the paper up after that. So from when they first had this research idea, it was probably about 2009, and we're just getting the paper to publication now in 2018. So... You know, they're not always that long, mm. but for a clinical trial with a significant number of people, then certainly it could yeah. take that long. But it's good that you're able to see it through, so that must be rewarding rather than leaving halfway. Yeah, yeah. For, for me, definitely, that, that's that been a really rewarding experience, seeing it from the beginning to the end. Um, <clears throat> but it's not always possible, and often people mm. leave, change direction along the way. Yeah. Yeah. Now we're getting towards the end of our chat, but I wanted to ask a sort of philosophical question about um, medical research as a whole. Considering it can take a while and funding can be difficult, would we ever get to a point, do you think, where the rate of medical research output is rather slow and, you know, because medicine itself depends on that kind of evidence, will we ever get to a, a situation where the evidence is coming out so slow that everything just stagnates? Yeah, I mean, that's a big question and it's a scary question. It's certainly possible. I think that with reduced investment in research, that's certainly possible. And I was lucky enough to visit um, Spain and part of their the Spanish Sleep Research Network mm-hmm. in 2017. And they showed me stats that they had because they were hit really heavily in the global financial crisis. And so their government basically said um, we're going to cut research funding, you know, we're cutting any fat in the budget we can Mm. and research funding was part of that fat. Anyway, so they showed this data where basically research funding went down and then after that um, publications go down, number of Mm. researchers go down and so it only makes sense that if you reduce investment in research, then research output decreases and therefore we're not answering as many questions and and it makes sense that then things stagnate. So um, I think that in Spain they are listening to researchers now and Mm. I think they're trying to rejuvenate that sector a little bit. Um, However, it's certainly possible anywhere and I think... um, we don't want that to happen here. <laughs> that is a little bit disheartening. I was secretly hoping you would say something like, oh, there are so many different studies going on all the time that they sort of compensate for each other and progress will happen. But uh, but I guess this is a reality that um, 
you know, it is quite lean and um, investment can be scarce. Yeah. So to end on a more positive note, yeah. um, what is the best advice that you would give to anyone considering medical research? Or maybe even to yourself when you were standing <laughs> standing there with your German degree, you know, thinking about whether to do it. What is the best yeah. advice? Yeah. Um, okay. So I think that you have to continue doing things that you are interested in. There's no point working on something if you're not interested in it. Um, that sounds a little bit airy-fairy and wishy-washy, but I think it's really important. Um, I think that you that doesn't mean that you have to be um, have a singular focus. You can be interested in lots of different things, but whatever you end up doing, make sure that it's one of those things that yeah. you find interesting. So I think be interested, but be flexible. Yeah. So that's probably probably all I can, the best advice I can think of right now. <laughs> yeah, that's good advice. Basically, do what you love. Do what you love, yeah. but be flexible enough that you can love multiple things. <laughs> Good. Good. Sounds sounds like good life advice. All right. Well, thank you so much, Julia. You've given us a really good insight, first-hand insights into medical research. And we look forward to seeing our listeners on the next episode. <laughs>